For decades, I have worried about nonprofits. I worry that leaders don't have what they need, that they have the biggest jobs and the least amount of resources, that they lead from a place of scarcity, and they build a board using a butts-and-seats strategy that doesn't give them the passion, the skills, and the attributes needed to build an organization to last. I worry that leaders have no time for professional development, that they believe that they can't afford it or see it as self-indulgent. Oh, yes, I worry about how nonprofits raise money. How many nonprofit websites I see without a donate button? Answer, too many. And the same true for all social media platforms. And my biggest worry? An over-reliance on special events that have caused a risky revenue portfolio. Too many eggs in a gift bag, I call it. This year, this last worry turned into a reality for so many of you. The annual event was canceled and it represented well over 50% of your revenue. And maybe you didn't use the event to its best advantage to steward and cultivate and build a more robust individual giving program. Hey, this is not a coulda, woulda, shoulda episode. This is an episode that explores the opportunities that 2020 made possible, literally forcing you to focus on how to get online giving right. In many cases, your organization's viability depended on it. So I went and found this guy who has helped nonprofits raise $2 billion online. He runs a company with one of the most successful online giving platforms out there. His client list is long and crazy impressive, but his lessons are universal regardless of the size of your organization. Prior to 2020, online giving ranged from 8 to 12% of nonprofit revenue. Shall I say that again? It was small, especially when the world was on the brink of a public health crisis. All of you threw out the old fundraising rule book that was due for a new edition anyway and began to think creatively. You became nimble. It was kind of fabulous to watch in a heartbreaking kind of way. Let's talk about what we learned and how those lessons will inform the future of online giving in 2020 and beyond. I was going to say to infinity and beyond, but I thought that was cheesy. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. Learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Scott Chisholm is a CEO and co-founder of Classy, a social enterprise that creates world-class online fundraising software for nonprofits, modernizing the giving experience to accelerate global social impact. Since 2011, thousands of nonprofits have collectively raised nearly $2 billion on this platform, tackling social and environmental issues of every kind. Scott co-founded Classy when one of the largest cancer organizations in the country refused to accept the money he raised during a fundraising pub crawl held to honor his mom, a two-time breast cancer survivor. Scott was inspired to start Classy to make it easier for anyone to support a cause that was meaningful to them, while at the same time making it easier for organizations to make lasting connections with the next generation of supporters. Classy is well known for its company culture and social enterprise business model that includes the Classy Awards, now the largest social impact award show in the country, its early support of the Pledge 1% movement, and its employee giving program called Hashtag Classy Gives. Most recently, Classy was recognized as a glass door best place to work. Scott's list of recognitions is long. Business Week, top five most promising social entrepreneurs. And he also donates his time. He serves on the board of the Leadership Council for the California Nature Conservancy, on the board of directors at Street Soccer USA, ASC San Diego, and on the advisory board at Teeb Rubicon, 
having previously served a four-year term on the founding board of directors. He is a frequent speaker, and we are lucky that his frequent speaking gigs includes this one today. Scott, I'm really happy to have you with us and anxious for listeners to really benefit from what you've learned and where you think these lessons might take us. Thanks for having me on. Um, I loved your intro. My bio was a little long, I must say. I guess if you do this long <laughs> enough, it just accumulates over time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I like people to really hear the story. I, I was, I could have edited it down, but the pub crawl story and your mom, it had to stay in. Yeah. Um, well, can we? Can I give you some props first? I mean, you were one of the most popular, if not the most popular, collaborative speaker. Our big annual conference this year with ten thousand people. So I, I got to give you some props as well for bringing down the house at the end. Well, thank you. That's really sweet, Scott. And um, uh, I think that you and I are kindred spirits yeah. in the sense that. It hardly feels like work to talk to 10,000 nonprofit leaders and give them a big old shot in the arm and some practical advice. And um, I think you and I are among the lucky ones. I mean, we make a living helping nonprofits grow and thrive. Do you find yourself kind of pinching yourself of what you've been able to build from a, from a pub crawl? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's you know, we, we sort of stumbled into this in a way coming from the supporters uh, perspective and, and we'll get to the founding story in a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it's been unbelievably inspiring. I mean, every day it's, I feel very grateful to be able to just look at what's, you know, what's happening on the platform and, and find that dose of inspiration that you need in, in rough moments. And everyone knows 2020 has been one of those years where, you you know, everyone's going to take that extra dose of inspiration and, uh you know, at any time. So it's been, it's been awesome. And, and, you know, I really respect a lot of the leaders that I've been able to work with um, in the trenches since the beginning. Um, you mentioned Tim Rubicon, Jake Wood is, is a good friend now. And I was on the, the founding board of directors, but you know, Jake's an unbelievably smart and gifted and talented person as many other nonprofit leaders are. And he decided to, he made a choice in his career. He could have done anything. You know, right. He could have been on wall street probably. He could have been on whatever. And so they're making a they're making a, a choice, and I, I dare I say sacrifice because I don't think that's the right framing. Um, but it's a purpose driven, passion driven choice, and I really respect that. Um, and he could be making three times as much in a different role, but right. he chooses to dedicate his life to to that mission. There's just so many of those stories that, that I find really inspiring. Yeah, I, um, I I just say ditto to that, Scott, and also just um, you know I often say that that that. Um, you know, once upon a time, we looked to our elected officials as, you know, the folks that were going to provide that kind of leadership juice in our society. And I think we have um, come to understand um, that we don't, we can't really look outside, that th- that that's not where you're going to find it, that, um, that I find it when I talk to my clients every day. And it also is something, if you're not going to see it out there, you know, um, there's, a, there's a sort of sense that, you know, gee, I guess if there's a void in leadership, maybe I should fill it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that we all have to kind of dig deep these days. And I think it starts with leading by example, you know, and trying to do the right thing. I mean, we're not, we're not perfect. None of us are, um, but when, when, it, when you're not getting uh, the examples that you wish from government and other sources, you gotta, you gotta dig deep and look at those around your respect. So I think we're lucky to be surrounded by a lot of those folks on a daily basis. Totally. And by the way, just to caveat, you're probably going to hear my kids run around in the background, and, like make a guest appearance. We talked about this collaborative, my phone just rang. So your, your intro was like perfect and pristine. And I'm just saying this interview is not going to be perfect. Well, let us remind each other and everyone listening that it's 2020. And so um, uh, perfection is something that we've actually kind of stopped aspiring to. And as you will point out, as we go along, nimble becomes a core yeah. value. So um uh, if your children run into the room, we'll just put them on the podcast. Um, so for those of, for those folks who do not know about Classy, can I do a little quick 411 on the product and um, why you're proud of it and how it distinguishes itself in the market? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Classy started as a passion project itself um, to raise money for the American Cancer Society. My mom had cancer growing up, as you mentioned in the, in the intro, and really all my friends I was living with at the time had also been affected by the disease. And we were trying to, you know, we weren't super philanthropists growing up. We, we didn't have a record of, you know, volunteering every weekend or anything like that. And we we're kind of trying to do our first, you know, good thing, I guess, uh, as 25-year-olds and get involved with the local chapter of the ACS. And we just ran into a bunch of roadblocks and you know, I, I really respect and love the, their work, but, you know, they weren't winning any uh, user experience awards that day, let's put it that way. And we decided to do our own third-party event, which ended up being a pub crawl, of all things. Uh, and when we were coming up with the name of that pub crawl, uh, my buddy Pete turned to me and said, well, why don't we name it the Stay Classy Pub Crawl? Because the movie Anchorman was on in our apartment at that given time. So literally, our company is named after Will Ferrell and, and the movie Anchorman, which is still comical to this day. Uh, and, you know, we don't have video on for, for the listeners. This is audio, but you can see there's a little like altar of Will Ferrell behind me. Uh, you can see like his thoughts. So it's just kind of a joke now, but we've, um, you know, oh, we, that's we ended hilarious. up doing... That's hilarious. Yeah. I had no idea. I actually had no idea yes. why your company was called Classy. Exactly. So there you go. Is the background. But we, we, we basically, um, you know, took that experience and we were inspired um, to uh, continue to try to get young people involved with charity in San Diego in a, in a more seamless and accessible and fun and easy way. Uh, and that meant basically partnering with different local nonprofits over the next four years and picking a project and ultimately hosting an event or a series of events to raise money for whatever project that we were, we were trying to uh, get done. And it, it branched beyond cancer. It was, you know, surf rider beaches, it was a youth homeless shelter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and ultimately the events got so big that we built um, Classy to solve like our own problem as mm-hmm. fundraisers, as third party fundraisers ourselves. And really what we wanted to do is allow someone to be able to, to buy a ticket to our event uh, and then very simply make a donation or um, what we really wanted them to do is be able to share, you know, a fundraising page on the early versions of social media. Now this is 2010. So we're talking Facebook is just coming up and MySpace is declining. So that's where we're at in the yep. world. Um, so it seems like ages ago, that wasn't even that long ago. And so we ended up building this app and that the nonprofits that we were, we were working with said, hey, what you've built is, is pretty awesome. Can we use it for our own core fundraising throughout the year? You know, the stay classy thing you're doing is really cute and all, but you know, we have a real business to run, but we really like the technology. So that's really when the light bulb moment went on for us. And you know, we were kind of like, why would they like this thing? You know, it's, it's, it's okay, but you know, and, and at the, now it seems like table stakes, but really it was, it was, you know, really mobile forward at the time. It was socially integrated, but the bottom line was that it was supporter centric. And I think that that's like the key to our product development strategy. Even today, we were for supporters ourselves. And so we like to think about our roadmap through the lens of the supporter, through the outside in. So we say, what would the supporter like? What's the best giving experience that we can deliver to the supporter on behalf of the organization? And I think Fantastic. that's a key, that's kind of a key North Star for us. Um, and now we're, you know, beyond peer-to-peer fundraising, we're really a full online fundraising suite for any size nonprofit organization, really in the back is quite, back end is quite powerful as well. We've tried to bring that user friendliness to the administrative area, which we know, you know, a lot of nonprofit leaders, development directors, uh, spend all day long in the back end and, and can't, you know, get a simple report out. So we're trying to make their world easier um, end to end, but starting with the giving experience first and then and then the back end. So um, as I noted in the intro before <clears throat> pre-COVID, um, online giving was such a small part of the revenue portfolio, right? Eight to 12%. And I, um, I imagined you out there uh, making, you know, making the case to nonprofits. And um, uh, I, I wondered, was, was it a, was it a hard sell when you first got started? Um, because I, I suspect you had a lot of education to do. We did. Um, and it's, it's funny, there's, there's a few companies, I won't name them by name, that came before us that, you know, actually were, had really uh, pretty strong products at the time and that were sort of like called Classy 1.0, but just the timing was off. The, the, the space wasn't quite there to say, this is a core priority of ours. And we were yep. lucky, we were just at the edge. Like we were, and what helped us was Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, and sort of the rise of crowdfunding, generally. And that, when that became a household name, it's not like nonprofits had never done peer-to-peer fundraising before. But the, the way that crowdfunding was being done and the integration of social media really opened the door for more conversations on the front end. But you're absolutely right. When we first started class, only 2% of giving was online. Wow. Now, depending on the source, it's about 10%. So it is growing quite fast. It doesn't right. sound, seem like a lot of growth, but it's growing double digits uh, each year. So today, we don't have to convince organizations that 
online is the future. I mean, there's a generational shift happening. They see it. They see it in their donor base as it ages. And it's a sad thing, but it's true. Um, and so it's a really strategic imperative to uh, form relationships with uh, their younger donors and, and cultivate them over time. The issue is that the donors are coming from all different places and they start their giving journey, you know, whether it's on Facebook or an event they attend or whatever, a crowdfunding campaign. And so it's become a little trickier. It's like, it's less straightforward in some ways. It's not a direct mail piece that you have a one-to-one relationship right off the bat. And people, it's a, sort of a scattershot. Yep. And the distractions have never been higher, you know, with, with everyone asking for money for everything, you know, go fund me campaign, your neighbor's cat is lost, you know, donate, right? So <laughs> they're competing with, you know, all of these different asks, you know, so I think the world is noisier, um, but the potential is higher in my view. So um, let's take a look back really quickly um, at the earlier part of 2020. Um, and and then I'm going to make you get out your crystal ball. So. Um, What'd you see in the first, and I saw a lot of things too, maybe we can talk about that. What'd you see in the first half of the year, um, uh, you know, with your clients and just in the space in general? Um, yeah, what, what, how, how did you see nonprofits contending with multiple crises, pandemic, racial unrest? Um, yeah, what'd you see? So in March, um, it was a little scary because, you know, everyone was trying to just get the bearings, I think. Um, and, and giving actually significantly dropped, like, overall, um, which is super rare. I mean, it is one of the most sort of steady eddy um, spaces out there. Over the last yeah. 100 years, giving has just continued to climb. And it ebbs and flows with economic conditions. But this was, this was different. This was two weeks where it was like, whoa, everyone was just like, what is north? What is, you know, what, where am I? Um, and so that was scary. But, you know, we, we, we knew it would come back, and it did. Um, and so really where the donations started flowing initially was to direct COVID relief organizations, as you'd expect, right? That was on everyone's mind. And unfortunately, what that did was it took the attention off of organizations that had the tried and true programs in your communities that really needed funding, especially the smaller ones. And so we saw uh, really a a shift in funding, you know, sort of a a tidal wave of funding going in one direction uh, and leaving some of the smaller, really important programs um, hanging out to dry. And then the ones that, you know, weren't diversified, the ones that, um, you know, were overly, overly reliant on one type of fundraising, especially physical events, really struggled. Because as we know, you know, physical events, they were a good buy from, from day one, of course, you know. And, and so it took at least three months for people to figure out, okay, how can we pivot from our plans in 2020, 2020 from a physical event perspective to you know, a virtual event or a crowdfunding campaign as a replacement. And that did ultimately happen. But in Classy, we saw, our, our, you know, events are a, a decent portion of, of the volume, the donation volume on our platform. And we saw that just go down, you know, yeah. practically to zero. And then slowly, it's been fascinating to watch slowly go back up. But those aren't physical events. Those are organizations figuring it out. So it's been really remarkable to see. And then every other type of fundraising has boomed back beyond the, the direct COVID relief. That still happens. But now, what we're, what we're seeing is the ballets of the world, the, you know, the yes. theaters, the museums, the you know, operas, those folks weren't really focused on online fundraising. And now they're all calling us up saying, hey, like, how, do we, how do we make this more core to our strategy? And then folks that were not diversified that actually might have been using Classy or another platform are like, well, you know, we need to be doing these five other things, not just this one thing, because if this thing shuts down, we need to rely on these other five things, even if it's a small bet, you know? Just be doing a small better habit lined up on the shelf, ready to go. Because right. you don't want to be, you know, flat-footed. And those are the organizations that really, really struggle. So. Well, and it is bouncing back, though. We've, yeah. We're seeing strength at the end of the year in our, in our peak giving. I think that's right. I, um, uh, but I, this, this, um, the, the arts organizations, um, any organization that relies on ticket sales and earned income, um, has really had to pivot in really different and big ways. And the other thing I would just say is that it is generally smaller organizations that tend to be overly reliant on events. And so it it created a significant vulnerability, as I saw it, in those organizations with budgets in the, you know, sort of million and a half or lower because um, they're not, their revenue streams are just not diverse. Usually these organizations get founded on a grant and then there's an event 
And then they've got, you know, and they're just, they're just not steady enough across, they don't have a good portfolio. So, um, and it's really exciting to hear, and I think probably encouraging for listeners to hear that the numbers are bouncing back. And some of that is just, you know, you who are listening is you were resilient and you've, as Scott said, you figured it out. Um, and so that leads us to, um, uh, to Scott Chisholm's crystal ball, um, which I can see on his, uh, on his bookshelf behind him. That's not true really, but he, no, he has a bookshelf. Um, (laughs) um, let's talk about what the future holds, what nonprofit leaders need to be thinking about as they move into 2020, right? Um, Clearly, the pandemic will still be front and center. Uh, A widely available vaccine allowing for the return of the annual gala as we once knew it is not going to be under anybody's Christmas tree or menorah. Um, We're probably, I I can't imagine we're looking at any sooner than mid-2021. Um, and you wrote this terrific piece, which really prompted this interest in having this conversation because I wanted to give your your good insights um, uh, a bigger platform, or at least my platform. Um, you talked about these five giving trends for 2021, and I thought they were really super smart. Um, and I'm going to read them, and then um, maybe you can give me a give a quick soundbite for everybody on each of them, and then let's focus on maybe two or three of them in a little bit more detail. Um, so um, uh, according to Scott, number one, I feel like I'm on Family Feud, uh, virtual events are here to stay. No kidding. Uh, number two, recurring giving will lead the way. Number three is nonprofit and for-profit connections will only strengthen. Four is that giving will become more distributed. And five, um, staying nimble is now an imperative. So take them one by one and just give me the the sort of the the quick four one one on each, and then I'm going to pick three of them and we'll go deeper. Cool. Yeah, we'll start from the back going forward because we were just talking about that. St- staying nimble is now a strategic imperative. Is basically the sort of inverse of what was happening where organizations, you know, were one dimensional on their fundraising or were you know too fixated on the offline world and need to diversify. And so <clears throat> placing small bets in various areas of your fundraising strategy and making sure you have something to go if something else fails is really the, the spirit of that one. Um, giving will become more diversified. That really is about giving happening in, in more than, you know, in more places than ever before, especially the first gift. So the first gift could be on Twitch. It could be on Facebook. It could be your Venmo. It could be all these different places. So, so how does the organization not only tap into these different channels, if you will, but steward the donors? Um, from all these diverse locations, which makes it, you know, again, world is more noisier and more diversified, but the opportunity is bigger, but we have to go capture it. Um, three nonprofit and for-profit connections will only get stronger. We saw some really unique partnerships forming during COVID. Uh, and you know, for-profits were reaching across the aisle, trying to, trying to say, they were more proactive saying, like, we really want to partner uh, and, and, and help people during this crisis. And uh, we think that's a catalyst for strong connections moving forward. Um, recurring giving will lead away. This is a trend that's been playing out over the last decade, really. Um, this is online recurring gifts. Um, it's not something that's brand new. Of course, you have, you know, from child sponsorships to memberships, um, and that's a form of recurring giving. But um, this is starting to play out across the entire sector in a really meaningful way um, for two reasons. One, the donor wants it. So it's it actually plays right into, you know, consumer or supporter behavior these days. They're used to subscriptions in their life from Netflix to Spotify. Um, so they're actually trending up in terms of picking a recurring gift, which is a one-time gift. And then just from a dollars and cents perspective, it's, it's at least five times more valuable than a one, one-time gift for our organization. The, 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 even if the gift's smaller, the recurring donor sticks around for longer. Um, and the more folks that move online are seeing the power of recurring giving. And then the last one was virtual events are here to stay. So, you know, I don't think physical events are going to be gone forever. Uh, but I, but I, the more nonprofits that I talk to and development leaders, you know, they're, they're definitely saying, I don't think that our physical event, you know, the walk series around the country is going to look the exact same, even if the pandemic's completely gone. I think they see the benefits of having a hybrid approach, whether that's, you know, the tried and true offline, because there's something to that, the camaraderie, being together, all that. I don't, I don't think people want to lose that completely. 
Um, but for folks that aren't in that physical location or geography, how do they, how do they be part of, uh, how can they be part of it? Right. And so making sure that the virtual events have a phenomenal experience or the virtual piece of an event has a phenomenal experience, just like the, the offline portion moving forward. So that's, so that's a, sort of the elevator pitch for yep, each. Good. Um, so just a, a quick comment about the, uh, the, uh, imperative of being nimble. Uh, we were talking earlier, um, I, I do believe that nonprofit leaders are seeing um, <clears throat> the real benefit of being nimble. It requires a certain amount of risk tolerance. Um, and that's not just with fundraising. It's also with their program work, which I have seen heroic, remarkable things that I think would have been harder to pitch and sell to their boards in a pre-COVID world. Uh because I do believe that boards tend to be risk averse. And uh, this is a place where the more conversations organizations can have between staff and board about the value, the benefit of nimble, the value of piloting, trying something new, making a couple of, you know, small bets, those kinds of things. Um, I have always hoped that the nonprofit sector would do that. And if that became one of the treasures of the darkness of 2020, that would be a good thing indeed. Um, uh, so let's um, let's get let's take rec- uh, virtual events, recurring giving, and the for-profit sector, and go a little bit deeper on each of them. Tell me what you what you. I mean, I here's what I've seen with virtual events: is I've seen this sort of like a sort of sense of surprise and joy um, with clients who have said, "Wow, we did that!" and um, we didn't spend nearly as much money so we could do X and Y instead. And, um, uh, so talk to me. I, I, I think it's been really, it's actually opened nonprofit leaders eyes to possibility with regard to gatherings and events. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what you've seen, what you would like to see in the virtual event space in 2021. Yeah, I think that I'm on the benefits column and it's long. Um, I'll just name a few. Uh, you know, the, 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 the thing I mentioned before is they freed themselves up from, you know, geographic limitations. So, you know, it automatically makes the event more accessible to more people, like period, you know, and, and, and you know, unless you're doing a major complex event series where you're hitting all the major cities where it's easy to drive to, which still is not that accessible for, for everyone. Um, this opens the door for anyone to support your cause. And I think that that's a huge benefit. Um, and so they've also, you know, that you mentioned the cost side, like they've, they've not only reduced their own costs, um, but they've, um, lowered the barrier of entries, entry for other participants because they don't have to take time off work. They don't have to fly somewhere. They don't have yep. to book hotels, all that stuff. So major, major, um, I don't even love to use the word overhead is a damn Pilata, you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, a major overhead reduction, um, you, you know, bet. from an event standpoint. So your margins are just a lot bigger. Now on the, on the, what do I lose column? You know, I think that you potentially lose some of that, you know, sort of energy and camaraderie uh, and some of those personal connections that are formed um, by folks walking together or riding together or whatnot. And that can, in my opinion, that can lead to higher retention moving forward because people experience the event in a different way. So it'll be interesting to see uh, sort of a yellow flag, I'd say, as virtual events have so many benefits, but are they going to be fleeting? Is someone going to just join one year and not have that strong connection to then do it a second, third, or fourth year? And so that's why I think that organizations are looking at this like, well, what's the what's the best of both worlds? How do we do something that does have a physical presence of some some sort? Maybe it's a lower footprint where you know they don't have to spend as much money and the margins look better on the physical part, but then they lay on this you know virtual element where <clears throat> excuse me anyone can can join from anywhere. Uh, and that really takes it to the next level uh, in terms of fundraising. The um, a couple of things just to, uh, on the virtual event side of things that I think is is interesting. Um, I also believe that there's an opportunity resident in in this notion of moving more towards virtual events um, that may take. And I, I don't mean to focus highly on boards, but boards love to sell tickets to events, right? They love their transactional fundraising. And I, and again, I'm making 
this is uh, gross generalizations for 400, Alex. But the, the, the point being that, <clears throat> you know, asking somebody to make a $500 gift to an organization because it's a meaningful organization as opposed to, hey, will you spend, um, we do this great event and the ticket price is $500 and uh, we have a C minus level celebrity who's going to be the host. And like for some reason for board members that can actually feel like an easier quote unquote sell. So I'm hoping that what will end up happening is by virtue of some of these shifts, um, uh, and, and it gets to your recurring do- donations as well, that we start to move more towards relational fundraising and away from this notion that, you know, if I, if I sell you, uh, if you make a donation to the Girl Scouts, you're going to get a box of Thin Mints, you lucky devil you, you know? Right. And, and so I think that's a really um, important piece. I also, uh, I also just want to say that... Um, Virtual events give you an opportunity to educate and enrich people about your work in a way that I think a special event doesn't, right? People are so distracted and they're networking and all of those things. So I would not miss the opportunity in these, as you think about your virtual events, maybe they're more like salons where you can bring in someone who can speak to trends in your particular sector who would never, you'd never be able to get them because they wouldn't fly or they wouldn't be available, but they might jump onto a Zoom and spend 10 minutes and fire your donor base up. So I just wanted to add those two things because I thought those were sort of important um, things to 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 think about on the virtual events. Anything else on virtual events for right now? Should we move on to recurring revenue? Oh, I was going to say that last point's great. That's exactly what happened with our collaborative uh, and the, yes. the, the the big conference we had. We we moved that virtual, and we were able to get an amazing speaker lineup this year. Um, you know, simply because you just had to turn your computer on, right, and join. Um, and so, yeah, that's a great point and, and something that should. For, for folks that are doing events that have speakers, sponsors, that type of thing, uh, I think virtual events are great. You know, the other thing that I just layer on is integrations with us. So for endurance events, the way that I've seen them move virtual is um, to integrate with other uh, sort of endurance platforms like Strava or you know even Peloton or, or wherever and do sort of this networked group, group run, race, ride kind of thing virtually, which is really cool. Track your own miles, whatever. So there's that's just the beginning, I think, of where that can go. Uh, it was sort of like a quick dash to say, hey, let's integrate with what's out there. Let's integrate with it and you know, keep this. But I think once those companies and then companies like Classy and then the, obviously the, the nonprofit itself start really brainstorming together, I think you're going to see some, some new kind of thing emerge out of that, which is going to be pretty, pretty special and exciting. Uh, yeah. Again, very accessible for people anyway. Yep, yep. During COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my book. Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is now in paperback and you can learn more at book.joangary.com. As the founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. I have the privilege of hearing the stories of the remarkable work being done every single day by an amazing group of kind and generous leaders around the globe. I want you to hear their stories too, uplifting and inspiring. Now there's something we could use a whole lot more of, right? And that's why I want to introduce you to the Leadership Lab's own podcast, Your Nonprofit Life. In each episode, Our lab's director of member experience, Laura Zelke, interviews a leader of a small nonprofit, offering you the opportunity to hear about their unique path into the sector, learn about the important work they're doing, and be inspired by their passion and determination to change the world in ways large and small. Sample this dose of hope at yournonprofitlife.com, or you can find it on your favorite podcast app. Um, Excellent. Let's talk about... uh, Recurring giving will lead the way, and I, I I will I will open this section by saying, um, the uh, the one metric that is often missing from a development dashboard as presented at a board meeting is, in my mind, the one that is the most powerful, and it is the percentage of retention. 
that we focus on the bottom line, how much revenue you're going to raise in this particular calendar year, or, you know, what's the, how, uh, how many donors do we have? But we never actually talk about how many donors did we lose and therefore have to replace. And, um, and this gets me back to my soapbox about relational fundraising and stewardship, which I think actually has been another one of the treasures of the darkness of 2020, is that <clears throat> I do see a lot more stewardship happening, people taking care of their posse of donors in a, in a different way. But so tell me, tell me a little bit about your insights about the future of recurring giving. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the folks in the, um, the for-profit sector that run membership or subscription businesses know those metrics really well that you're mentioning. I feel like there is a lack of sort of focus on um, gross and net retention, on, you know, your recurring revenue base, on um, lifetime value, on cost of acquisition for recurring, and all of those ratios that are really second, you know, just second nature to, you know, someone that works for, say, Netflix. Yep. Um, I, I mentioned a book on the, the art, uh, in the article called Forever Transaction that's about um, Robbie Kelman-Baxter's experience working with Netflix and others um, that I think is a, is a good read. For folks oh, interesting. In okay, we'll put that in the it's show a totally notes. Different, it's a totally different sort of context, but I think there's a lot to gain from that. Yeah. Um, and then there, there's many blogs you can find um, you know, on, on, the, on the internet for SaaS and subscription businesses that are highly, highly applicable. To the nonprofit business, so I'd start with just sort of education and focus because, again, the non, uh, in in the nonprofit world, a recurring donor is is at least five times more valuable. We found that across our platform alone, and most organizations are doing absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing, to curb the donor churn. Um, and so those numbers still look pretty good, and they're literally just letting kind of the, the donors leave. There's really no effort on boosting retention. And that's really the elephant in the room in, in my mind. You know, there's so much focus on the front end, so much focus on being in Facebook and every other social channel. Um, and what I usually advise is, you know, focus on the front end and then focus on the back end. That means nail one channel, right? One or two channels you're good at. And then really focus on retention. Like that actually is probably more important when you do the math. You know, that's going to get you that revenue growth those next several years. And so, you know, I feel like we... We talk about this uh, often, but it really is that powerful. Uh, and the good news is that 2020, as more folks and you know, types of organizations moved online, especially the ones that had membership programs that were more offline or that, you know, the sort of the theaters and all this, they're really taking to this, this model. And I, I think that that's going to be a powerful thing moving forward. And it really truly is a more sustain, a sustainable form of, of revenue generation for the organization. It's something that they, they build a recurring revenue base and they can rely on that. Um, year in, year out, and they can plan for it. And so when something happens, this hits number five. So how do you build a durable organization where you have revenue that you can rely on year in, year yep. out versus having to go get it and yep. go produce something to go get it? Um, and so if you were to do nothing else, in my view, you know, if you're just, if you're just so stubborn, you're like, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. The <laughs> one other thing you should do is build a recurring giving program for this exact reason. You yes. know, and I think that that will pay off. Look at your events, look at your crowdfunding, look at your peer-to-peer, -peer, all of that, your website donations. Look at those as top-of-the-funnel activities to build recurring donor base. Uh, and I think the organizations that are um, doing that are going to be here for a very long time. And the donor, again, the donors want this. That's the, that's the other piece of it. It's not, this isn't some like, you know, marketing scheme to just make money, right? This is the donors are literally asking for it. And we're seeing a higher percent of donors pick recurring gifts versus one time than ever before. And part of that is tied to the generational shift, but part of it is really the behavior of consumers everywhere from Netflix to Spotify. Yes. And so we're just fortunate to have this like inherent trend, right, in this space. And so it's like shame on us for not leading into that and giving what donors what they want. That's, that's my view. Um, so uh, two things come to mind um, before we go to the third one. Um, uh, the first one is, um, so I run, uh, you know, I run a membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits and I do consulting and CEO coaching and, um, uh, we focus as much on the, the retention of our thousands of members as we do with acquiring them. And, uh, 
um, because we, A, because we want our members to have a five-star experience. We want them to feel value so that when that charge hits their, um, hits their credit card bill, it's a no-brainer for them. Yes, this was of such value to me. Um, from a business perspective, it has provided me with a, you know, sort of a sustainability model for my own business. So, so I, I, I live that every day in my work. Um, and, um, the other just piece I want to add here is that, um, the reason we haven't focused a lot on retention is because we just don't do a very good job of stewarding. We don't actually sort of touch the donors and engage with them on a regular basis. And this is um, the one thing I just wanted to add is that um, this is the road to getting your boards to fundraise, is to engage them in stewardship. That if they actually have a portfolio of people that they are connected to, and I, I, you know, this is, this is how you get them to the place where they are comfortable, potentially even soliciting. Once they feel like they understand their role as an ambassador, as a champion, an educator, and they have people to say those things to. So uh, that's just, I'll put my soapbox about uh, fundraising away there. And um, yeah, I'd I, I, yeah, I add, add one thing. I, I, I don't think that the, on the technology side, you know, I take a little bit of accountability here too. I don't think that the technology sector that serves nonprofits has done a very good job of sourcing this information for them on the analytics and insight side. Like it's one thing to, you know, have the intent to steward these special type of donors, but how are we helping to make that easier? How are yes. we telling an organization or suggesting when to engage with an organization, with a donor at the right time yes. um, to not have them churn? And there's all sorts of software, uh, you know, back to the membership and subscription side like Netflix. There's so much software out there that helps those organizations do that, that are completely focused on that. And in this space, um, there isn't. And so that's like highly, uh, you know, this is something that we are working on really hard because, um, we just feel like it's a massive gap uh, for nonprofits. And so it's one thing to bring, you know, donors into the front end, but where's the, you know, it's like putting in a, going into a black hole. Um, it's so who should I be talking to and when, and especially when you have thousands and thousands of online donors, it's not like you have a hundred offline donors or, yeah. or major donors. This is, this is at scale now. Um, so how do you make sense of all of that? Yep. Um, so that's, that's something that I think that the whole space just needs to do a better job of, of and us included. I am, I mean, I agree with that. And uh, Beth Cantor, who is a leader in the sector on the tech side, uh, I did a re recent podcast, not sure if it is currently live, but it was all about AI and its and the role that it can play in freeing up nonprofit organizations and development professionals, uh, providing them with that exactly the kind of information that you're talking about that that actually can drive more relational um, fundraising. Um, so let's grab the, the third one quickly. And um, nonprofit and for-profit connections will only get stronger. And I'd love an example of something you saw in 2020 um, and the promise that that presents for uh, 2021 and beyond. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we see nonprofit and for-profit partnerships all the time. Um, you know, more in the, on the sort of traditional CSR bucket or, um, you know, kind of employees um, giving a percentage of their, their paycheck to a charity. Like that stuff has existed for a long time. This, but this is what I would call um, more, you know, in the moment or like real time collaborations when something happens. Um, and we saw it a little bit before COVID. If a disaster happens in your, in your particular locale, you know, your employees, um, you know, want to see what your company is going to do about that. Right. Uh -huh. Like if you have a tornado or you have fires, you know, and you work for X company, it doesn't matter if you make widgets or you're a disaster relief organization, your employees now are like, Hey, what are we doing to help this situation in our community? Um, and that, that, that speaks to, I think, an evolution of um, the mentality of the for-profit employees generally, which is yes. great. And that touches the B Corp movement, all these different things, being able to support all of your stakeholders, especially your community. Um, so as your company grows, um, how are you delivering value back? And so if something happens in your community, you can't just sit idly by and say, oh, that's, yeah, someone else will worry about that one, right? That's just not happening anymore. And I mentioned that first because that's the macro trend I see pushing for-profit organizations to want to partner with nonprofit organizations, especially in their community in a much stronger fashion. So when something does happen, they're ready and they can respond with 
the nonprofit organization who is most likely on the front line, and that's fine. But they need to they they need to collaborate, and so they'll usually become a fundraising catalyst for that nonprofit on the front line, and they'll keep their employees and their constituents or their 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 consumers updated on what's happening. In a real world example, we we, we saw in COVID early in COVID. Uh, was sweet was with sweet green the popular organic restaurant chain uh, came to us actually reached out to me on linkedin of all things and was like uh-huh. hey we need we you know we want to partner with with classy but more importantly we want to partner with one of your your part, partner nonprofits like can you make that happen and then they've laid out what they wanted to do and so we paired them with world central kitchen which is an organization that provides meals to um, folks that are affected by natural disasters and so what they ended up up doing was creating a, a fund together and they were both feeding they were they they were using the sweet garden um popularity and, re- and part of their revenue to help fund uh world central kitchens direct covid relief which was really at the time um frontline medical personnel and vulnerable communities and so i thought that was just an amazing thing where you know we were able to play kind of the middleman there but i just see um in sort of a one-off basis but i just see a massive opportunity uh, for someone to come in, um, whether it's classy or, or someone else, to, to bring these two sectors closer together beyond the traditional CSR, right? And and again, does that, it's a little sad because it's disasters that kind of drive these partnerships a lot, like in, in your community. But I think it'll go beyond that. I think it'll be, be, be more of an evergreen relationship that's going to become more and more important. Uh, and not for marketing fluff. It's not like, hey, we support you know, $1 to whatever. Uh, it's actually more driven by the employees of the for-profit organization. So it's, hey, guys, wake up you know, get in line and partner with these organizations in our community and start, you know, giving a shit about these things. And that's what I'm seeing. I, I think those things are coming together and COVID just catalyzed. I totally to agree with you. I, um, it's so interesting because I, you know, started out in the for-profit sector and um, I just have seen such an interesting trajectory of how for-profit organizations interact with the nonprofit sector. You know, it began with like uh, the discretionary fund of the CEO could buy a table, right? Then it moved to uh, HR and, you know, maybe the, maybe it was, playing into some diversity objective in some fashion. And then we moved to corporate CSR, corporate social responsibility, which oftentimes in a company is in the, under the auspices of public relations, right? How does it make our, how does it improve our brand? Then it moved to marketing. What's in it for our brands to be associated with you? How are you going to deliver the kinds of people we want to reach? Um, and um, so then it became much more transactional. And now um, it's it's evolving yet again, largely employee-driven, which is, right, everything you know and read is younger employees, when they interview for jobs, they want to know, you know, where, uh, what boots, what, what ground are your boots on as it relates to um, social causes and your place in the community. And it's, it's actually one of my favorite things to be seeing because it's driving uh, it's driving the sort of moral conscience of uh, of the private sector in a way that I I I, I could say I'm kind of would have been skeptical about in some you know five years ago. Totally, I think that well, employees are asking their employer, "What do you stand for?" Um, and I think people get confused a little bit on the answer to that question. It doesn't always have to be, "Well, I stand for you know breast cancer awareness research," or "I stand for." It's not necessarily cause-driven, or although it could be, certainly. It right? could like, be. It's organizations that take a very, you know, proactive stand on certain things. Um, to me, it's more, it's what you stand for, to me, is, is about how you're treating all the stakeholders that your business yes. interacts with, and especially your community. So sort of a values, else. like a values-based proposition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I think that's the shift I see away from, you know, just this sort of maniacal um, focus on, on profit, and there's nothing wrong with making money. Um, but doing that at the expense of other stakeholders, that, that mindset is starting to slowly go away. And it was really boosted by Milton Friedman in the 70s, not to get into a history lesson here. But, but prior to the 70s, we thought like this in business, actually. This isn't new. It's just coming back. 
And right. so I think that that's, you know, phenomenal. Some of the best companies that we, you know, probably don't even think, think would ever be thinking this way, like Unilever or Levi's or some of these great, you know, brands um, really had the stakeholder mindset. And that's, that's where, I, where I, I think a lot of companies are going, whether they go the full distance and become B-corporated or not or, uh, you know, be certified or not or become a benefit corporation, they are absolutely bringing this line of thinking into their boardrooms, which I think is a, a major evolution, really, um, in, in the overall for-profit space. And I think that only leads to more partnerships with the nonprofit space. Um, and I think it creates a new category of something in between, right? Companies that see themselves as kind of nonprofit, for-profit. And really, that's just a tax designation and, and an easy way to talk about this, right? Cleanly. Totally. Um, but if they're out to solve problems, you know, what's the difference between solving social and an environmental problem versus, you know, creating technology for X, Y, and Z, which ultimately probably is sol solving some, you know, problem that's similar. And so the lines are blurring and they're coming together. Uh, and I think that's exciting for us, you know, where yeah. you can see ourselves sort of in the middle there. Uh, um, and, you know, we kind of see both sides. So. Uh, yeah, 2020 is exciting from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's so much it, else it, is exciting. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I mean, I think the, the the big takeaway as we close out here is is there's a lot of promise in 2021. Um, you know, people spend a lot of time in 2020 thinking to themselves, "Am I going to make it to the other side?" And uh, and and. Um, and the answer to that is, yes, it is possible that some won't. It's possible we'll see more mergers. Um, but one of the things for sure that we'll see are some, uh, or that we hope to see, and I think that's the, um, the point of this episode, is focus on the things that you did differently in 2020 and see the promise in those things and make them uh, part of the DNA of your organization going into 2021 as it relates to fundraising and, um, you know, be inspired by what you did and be motivated to take that to new and interesting places in 2021. So um, Scott Chisholm, the CEO of Classy, thank you so much for joining us. This was um, uh, both instructive and, uh, and motivational for the folks who are listening today. So I appreciate it very much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me. I'll have to be back someday, maybe yeah. for twenty twenty two. I guess it would be. <laughs> yeah, we can we can uh, we can do a debrief on whether or not your crystal ball worked. There we go. I love that. There all you right. go. Thanks so much. All right, thank you, Scott, and um, for all of you out there. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found um, I hope you found this interesting and instructive. I found it to be both. And um, as always, please stay safe. Try to stay sane. And thank you so much for all the good work you do. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Hey, thanks for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thanks for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.